Good morning. Welcome again to our live stream here at South Suburban Christian Church. My name is Pastor Ike Nicholson, and I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. Uh, we are grateful for not only your willingness to be here online with us, but for those of you who are watching us on uh, Facebook, uh, YouTube, and those who are listening by SoundCloud. Thank you for uh, being here. Thank you for sharing this with your friends on your feed. Uh, we appreciate the partnership that we have for the sake of the gospel. We're in the middle of, uh, actually we've just begun a series, uh, The Stories of Jesus. Uh, it's actually going to take us through the summer, 14 week, but each sermon is a standalone sermon, so you don't have to worry about not having caught the first couple of sermons. Uh, but we want to present sort of a chronological story of Jesus through the Gospels, looking at the seven periods of his life. Uh, the, we're going to have two messages uh, from each of those periods. And our message today is the second and final uh, message of the first period of his life, the period from his birth uh, to his baptism. Uh, but we're kind of staying uh, near the beginning of his life. I want to present to you some of the stories that uh, really aren't as well known, but are profound and important in understanding who this Jesus is and hearing the story of Jesus. And most importantly for this series, uh, a willingness on our part, not so much to invite Jesus into our story, but for us to respond to the invitation by Jesus to step into his story. And so with that, we're going to be looking today at uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. It's not a very long text. It is a text that is rarely preached on. But as I read this text, I uh, am, am reminded of uh, another story of Jesus from Luke chapter 18, verse 11. It's probably a story that you're more familiar with. Jesus is uh, teaching about prayer and the proper posture of prayer. That is, is how we should hold ourselves when we pray. Uh, Alexander Campbell, the founder of the Christian Church Movement, of which our congregation is a part, uh, used to teach that there were only two appropriate postures for prayer. That is, is that we should pray only in one of two ways, either standing or kneeling. And, and I know that we, we're not uh, uh, judgmental or, or strict about that these days. Uh, but Jesus is talking about a posture here in Luke 18. And he's not so much talking about how we organize our physical bodies, whether we're standing, kneeling, sitting, but how our heart, what is the posture of our heart uh, as we come to God in prayer. And, and he's talking about the religious leaders as uh, they're praying. And he's telling us not to be like the religious leaders. And he talks about one of these religious leaders who, when they stood to pray, though that isn't as important that he's standing, it's what he said and what was coming out of his heart. Because Jesus says, don't be like the religious leader who prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like others, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And then Jesus turns his attention to the tax collector who comes with his head bowed, beating upon his breast, and asking God to be merciful to him, a sinner. You know, I think sometimes one of the most dangerous perspectives we can have is some sort of sense of confidence that we know what God is doing, or we know uh, what uh, our place is in God's story. Now, I know it's frightening at times when we don't understand the events that are around us. We only need to look at the events that are going on around our nation and around the world today to get some sense of that uncertainty and that fear. 
You know, sometimes we might be tempted to say, Lord, if you would just give me some indication that you know what you're doing, or Lord, if you would just tell me where we're headed, then I think I could follow you more confidently. And even though as I say that to you and you hear that, you, you th Pastor, that's crazy. That's not how we should do it. I know. But isn't it an all-too-human response? So with that, let's look at God's Word. I hope that you found that. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Let's listen to the Word of the Lord. But when Herod died, <clears throat> behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that uh, Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went in and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When uh, my wife and I had our first son, one of the things that I noticed right off the bat is he didn't come with an instruction manual. I was absolutely convinced that I was going to mess this young man's life up somehow. Now, it may not seem like a big deal to you, but there's a particular incident that occurred with my son uh, when he was very young, uh, early in his life. We lived on a, a street that was a cul-de-sac. It was only two houses on that street at the end of the cul-de-sac. And uh, if, if you were a vehicle on that cul-de-sac, it meant that you were going to one of two houses, either our house or the house of our neighbor. And uh, unfortunately, because of that, the cul-de-sac, the street, became sort of an extension of the yard and therefore an extension of the playground. And uh, that always caused me to worry a little bit because uh, in the life of a young child, uh, we can begin to assume that all streets are our playground, and I didn't think that was a very good thing. So I decided I would do something about it. And so on one particular day, as my son was headed out toward the street, uh, I yelled at him, Stop! Well, as you can imagine, he did not stop. <laughs> he just went out onto the street. And when I called him down for that, I scolded him for not obeying me. And even in his young age, as probably four, maybe five years old, he began to tell me that my fears were unfounded. Daddy, uh, there's no cars on this road. This is perfectly safe. I don't need to obey you. There's no traffic. There's no danger. Well, I said to him, son, that's not the point. As his father, it's my responsibility, my responsibility to ensure his safety. And as a part of that effort, he was required to be obedient. And as I like to say, quickly and cheerfully. Uh, you can ask any of my kids and you say, how are you to be obedient? They'll say, Daddy says we have to be obedient quickly and cheerfully. I said to him, son, someday we may be on a busy street. And you may not be able to see the danger that's coming. But when I say stop, or if I say go left or go right, you need to do that immediately. It's my job to pay attention to what's going on. And son, I can't do my job effectively if you don't do your job effectively. And that is, you must obey me quickly and cheerfully. 
it could save his life someday. Now, that's probably not all that different than an instance in your own life. For those of you who have uh, been in authority over children, but why is this incident burned into my mind? Well, because I have not always practiced what I preach. As a son of my earthly father, I wasn't always responsive and obedient. And certainly as a child of God, I have oftentimes spent more effort questioning God rather than simply walking in faith. Now, as I try to enter into the story that was read today from Matthew chapter 2, as I try to invite all of us to step into his story, I have a ton of respect for Joseph, uh, the husband of Mary, the father, the earthly father of Jesus. Now, you know, if you read the story of Joseph, Joseph is predominantly led by dreams. He actually has four dreams that become significant in how he leads his family. You might remember the first dream. We hear it at every Christmas story when the angel comes to Joseph and, in a dream and tells him that he is to take Mary to be his wife, even though she is with child. The second dream that Joseph uh, experiences is when he's told to take his family to Egypt so that they can escape King Herod, who is seeking to kill every child in Bethlehem under the age of two. The third dream happens while they're in Egypt, and the angel tells them that it's okay to come back to Israel. And here in verse 22 of chapter 2, the fourth dream, when God tells Joseph to take his family to Galilee, where he settles in the town of Nazareth. Now I'm going to come back to that point a little bit later in the message today. When we first read verses 19 through 23, much of it can seem really strange and foreign to us. The world is in great conflict in the context of the story. And as you might be thinking, it's really not all that different than the way the world is today. A world of extreme conflict. But my first point for you today God always sees the big picture, and that big picture is always redemption. When we encounter verses like 19 through 23 that was read today, we oftentimes just simply read over it. We, uh, we, we try to get to the parts of the Scripture that relate to our story, things that we understand, things that don't seem strange to us. But I would suggest that if you do that too often, you may be simply trying to invite Jesus into your story alone rather than trying to step into his story. Now, it's not always fun to enter into the story of someone else. It requires a little bit of work, and it can be very uncomfortable. Uncomfortable about our own assumptions and uncomfortable to finally be confronted with the kind of life that other people have to live. When I first moved to this part of the country near Denver, Colorado, one of the things that my wife and I first noticed right off to the bat is, is that pretty much most people here aren't from here. There's a great deal of pride of those who call themselves natives, that is, as they were born and raised here, but there are few and far between. Most folks from here hail from somewhere else. Well, that isn't all that 
uh, uh, strange or unusual. As a matter of fact, in most urban areas, you have a huge influx of people who aren't from that particular urban center. I think one of the uh, areas that was most poignant in that realization was when I lived and served in Washington, D.C. There were certain neighborhoods there in D.C. that changed every four to eight years, depending on who won the presidential election. But here, we are given a hint of the problem. Right there in verse 22, when Matthew tells us, Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod. Or as some might say, Archelaus. Now as you probably know, King Herod was a horrific individual. He was brutal. He would compromise his values and his faith in order to get some sort of political advantage, even going to the point of offering incense to pagan gods so that he would be held in, in high esteem by uh, the, the, the Roman officials. As a matter of fact, he was so horrific and brutal that anything that advanced him politically he would do and anything that got in the way of his advancement he would do everything he could to get it out of the way even if it was the possible threat of his own children as a matter of fact herod had three of his own sons put to death because he was afraid that they were more popular than he was in the eyes of the people now when he died Archelaus, his son, was really just a chip off the old block. After the death of King Herod, many of the people of Jerusalem were expecting a lot of changes. Changes in taxation, and the brutality of government officials, and uh, the, the soldiers of the time who uh, would violate uh, their homes and, and, and take their wealth and, 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 and take their children, pressing them into service. Well, during Herod's rule, Herod had actually placed an eagle over the entrance of the temple. It was an effort to sort of tip his hat and express his loyalty uh, to his Roman overseers, for the eagle was the emblem of the Roman Empire. But after his death, a, a group of students, along with their teachers, rioted in the city of Jerusalem. And one of the things that they did is, is they destroyed this eagle that was hung over the entrance of the temple because of what it represented. That it represented the tyranny and oppression of the Roman Empire. The refusal of the Roman Empire to allow the Hebrew people self-determination. Well, when they tore down this uh, eagle and did all of this destruction, Archelaus... Herod's son, now the new ruler, decided that the best way to establish order was to come down and to come down hard. And so all of the students and all of the teachers that had taken part in the riot were rounded up, arrested, and executed. Well, this really didn't bring peace to the city of Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, even those who had been more peaceable before now suddenly were even more furious. The folks that were on the fence got off the fence and joined with the people and declaring to the Roman officials that a change had to happen in Jerusalem. And so the Roman emperor wisely took note of this 
and had Archelaus exiled to the city of Vienna, which was in what was then called the area of Gaul. Now, as we delve into all of that historical background that surrounds that name in verse 22, just that name many of us skip over. But to the original hearers of this, to the original readers of this gospel, when they saw that name, all of those events, all of that strife, all of that political intrigue would have been what had immediately, would have immediately come to their minds. I wonder what they asked. I wonder what you might be asking. Maybe questions like, well, why would God allow King Herod to do such horrific things? Why would God allow his son, who was the worst of the bunch, to take over? Why would God allow those students and their teachers of God's law there at the temple suffer an execution when they took no lives, but only sought to decry their anger toward the inflexibility of the Roman Empire? Well, here's my answer. I have no clue. I'm not really sure why God didn't do those things. As a matter of fact, I might even say, I'm not really sure God even cares who's in power as a king or an emperor. I'm not really sure that God recognizes the temporal or earthly or human designated powers of things like kings and queens, presidents, members of Congress or the Supreme Court. I think... I believe that in God's eyes there is only one sovereign and He is the King of all kings. The Lord of all lords. As if there is anything that any human being can do that will thwart God's will or God's plan toward redemption. I don't know about you, but for me, that gives me such confidence. A sense of safety and security that even though I may not be able to control what's going on around me, I know that there is someone who does and is in control. Someone who is able to see the big picture that I'm not always able to see. For my eyesight is just about here. All I can see is what is in front of me. But, but, but the sovereign God who looks over all of creation, like this table, and can see the beginning to the end, to Him all of these things are happening. He knows what's going on. He has complete knowledge of every step that every single one of us will take. And in some sense, I rest in the safety and security of a sovereign God an all-knowing God, and all-loving God. Which brings me to my second point. That even in the midst of that safety and security, it's only in those times of confidence, only in those times uh, that we know that God knows what's going to happen tomorrow, that God oftentimes likes to poke fun at folks who think that they're more powerful than He is. 
Or, or let's, let's say this perhaps in a, in a little easier way. Sometimes God likes to show us with humor that it's not we who are in charge. It is He who is in charge. I, I know this because Archelaus, uh, because of Archelaus, be, because this guy is, is now the ruler after his father, King Herod, that Joseph and his family are forced to move to Nazareth. It's because of this evil overseer, this evil king in the city of Jerusalem, in the province of Judea, that the Holy Family moves to Galilee. Sometimes when bad things happen, our effort to avoid those bad things, the, 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 the leading of the Holy Spirit that leads us away from those bad things, is what directs us toward something good, toward the will of God, toward redemption. You see, it was important, Matthew says, for Jesus to come from Nazareth. Because as the text says, these words are fulfilled in the prophets when they spoke that he would be called a Nazarene. Well, a Nazarene is somebody who is from Nazareth. But if you go back and you read all of the prophecies of the Old Testament, you will not find one verse that says that the Messiah is supposed to come from the city of Nazareth. So why would Matthew put this in here? Why would the Holy Spirit uh, lead Matthew to write these words? Well, I think it's a sense, it's a, a mark of God's sense of humor. <laughs> That's what I think it is. Why? Well, because the Old Testament does say some things that are important to that sentence and that word. In Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8, uh, we read, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. In Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, we read, uh, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. Talking about the coming of the Messiah and the prophet Zechariah of the Old Testament. In another prophet, Jeremiah 33, 15, Those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up from David. And again in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, And there shall come, this is the one you know, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch to grow out of his roots. That word branch comes up over and over and over again throughout all of the prophets, for that is one of the terms, the names, the designations for the Messiah, that the Messiah will be a branch. Well, guess what? The word Nazareth is Nazareth. And Nazar, the word Nazar in Hebrew, literally means, you guessed it, branch not, not only is this a literal fulfillment of the writings of the prophets but i believe that it's god's sense of humor from this city called branch will i bring the branch prophesied in the old testament now scholars argue a lot about that whether or not uh, nazareth is named branch because it's the the place from which the messiah will come or if it is a term of derision to the city itself branch can mean many things can it 
we in the Christian tradition understand it from the prophets and, and we see this sense of, of messianic fulfillment. But it can also mean a, a, a portion of the tree that's not as important. When we look at a tree, we don't oftentimes look at the branches. We, we look at the girth and strength of, of, of the trunk. We might think about the extension of the roots, which provide it its health. We might even look at the leaves and the shade and the beauty and the color, green in the summer and, and the autumn colors in, in, in the fall. But other than when my dad said, son, go get a switch, I don't really think about the branches much. And most scholars agree that that's probably how Nazareth got its name. It was a far-off city in a far-off region, considered a backwater village where there was crime and corruption, where the folks did anything that they could do to get by. The city of Nazareth was not known for its intellectual fervor, for its athletic performances. It was just a know-nothing village with a bunch of know-nothing people <clears throat> to the extent that in everyday language of the time of Jesus, to be told that you were somebody from Nazareth would have been considered an insult, whether or not you were actually from Nazareth. What would be the modern English equivalents? Well, at the risk of offending somebody, it might be something you live from across the tracks. You're from the red light district. You're from the hollers if uh, you're in Appalachia or in some rural parts of Maryland. Or, or, I'm sorry, West Virginia or Kentucky. You are a redneck. You are a hick. You are foolish. You are ignorant. You are stupid. Your opinions mean nothing. You provide nothing. You are nothing. You are just a drain on society. Those are hard things. To some, offensive things. And I share those with you, not because they're true, but to try to convey to you what it would have meant to be called a Nazarene. That is, Jesus is a redneck hick from the hollers, a know-nothing from the other side of the tracks, from the bad part of town. We know good and well, that's not how God is going to usher in His kingdom. But we modern Christians do a real good job of putting a kingly coat on Jesus, of celebrating His uh, royal lineage, all of which are true. But in doing so, we miss that the words of the prophet Isaiah fulfilled that He was coming as a servant, a suffering servant. Isaiah even says that He was not much to place your eyes upon, which means He wasn't necessarily handsome as King Saul was when he's introduced in the Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus was just an everyday human from a rough family, from a backwater town. And through that, God was going to bring redemption. I don't think I'll settle this today, do you? But it's something to think about. Too often we have our eyes focused on what we think God should be doing and from where we think God should bring redemption. But because God sees the big picture, because God can see the traffic on both sides of the street when the child can't see past the parked car, we don't see what God sees. Which brings me back to the first couple of moments you and I were together this morning, today. 
when we talked about Joseph and the dreams and what he was called to do through these dreams. And my respect, and I hope now your respect, for this earthly father and husband. And it brings me to my third point. Life is a mystery. But the mystery is ours alone. It is not God's. (laughs) We forget that Joseph and Mary were living a mystery. (laughs) It was too big for them to really wrap their minds around. At times it was frightening. And at other times it was bewildering. Imagine being told just having given birth to a child that your husband comes and says, I had a dream and the angel said we're supposed to leave and go to Egypt. How would you respond? The human guidance and advice and training that they received prepared them for what lay ahead. And that advice was remarkably similar to the same advice you and I have. And that advice is, well, little or none at all. Like a dad trying to figure out how to raise a son. Like many of us trying to navigate life in the midst of a pandemic. Like a nation trying to have a civil conversation about politics, culture, literature. About people who have lived very different lives and trying to convey the pain of prejudice. And racism. Listen, all of these forces, all of these problems, all of these issues that you and I are dealing with today, they're right in step with Jesus' story. You see, without our even knowing it, we haven't invited Jesus into our story, but all of the struggle, all of the trials that we're experiencing today is an opportunity, an invitation for us to step into his story. To see Joseph and Mary. For all of this that they experienced, here's what it did to them. It made them rely on God. Each day. It made them rely on his protection. And his direction every moment of their lives. Their belief in God wasn't a part of their life. It is what informed their life. It is what gave them meaning. Interestingly, after the initial burst of divine revelation, Joseph and Mary faced the same trials and struggles, we assume, that any parent would face raising a child, except for this. Their child was the Messiah. They were raising God's Messiah. They were raising the Son of God and God the Son. And just like Joseph and just like Mary, just like Jesus and the disciples and all of those whose lives we read about in these sacred pages, just as they had to rely on God to lead them through their mysteries, 
so too do you and I need to rely on God to lead us through the mystery of our life. Knowing that He is leading us toward redemption. Where has God led you? What has been the complexities and the problems that you have experienced in your life? Do you see them as things that have gotten in the way of your relationship with God or things that invite you into a relationship with God? Are they things that you are expecting God to remove from your life if you become a follower? Or are these things ways for you and I to testify of God's faithfulness? No matter what life has thrown at you this day, this week, this month, in this season, no matter what pain, no matter what struggle, I want to invite you to step into the life of Christ today. To become a follower of Jesus Christ. To allow your life to be informed by Him. Would you say yes to this question? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And do you accept Him as your Lord and your Savior? Nothing more, nothing less than all of you. For He gave all of Himself to you and to me. If you've said yes to that question, will you let us know? In the time that we've been online, 48 other people have made that decision. Will you join with them as the gospel of Jesus Christ continues to go forth unhindered in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of the violence, in the midst of prejudice? Jesus is still calling all people to his plan of redemption. Will you pray with me? Merciful God, for those that have said yes today to step into your life, we give you praise. And even as we ask for peace, even as we ask for understanding, O oh God, may in the midst of the mystery of life, we simply seek to follow you, to faithfully respond to your call, to obey quickly and cheerfully, knowing that you are leading us to redemption. In Jesus' name, amen.